Today's episode is made possible with support from Bremer Bank. Work with a banker who understands your business goals and how a strong banking relationship will help you achieve them. Work with Bremer Bank. Put Bremer to work for you today at bremer.com. The thing that I keep coming back to is like the level of impact that we've been able to make as a team with NanoDropper versus, you know, how many patients I could have helped if I was a physician. And we're, we're going to be helping hundreds of thousands of patients with our device. And that's probably like more than a lifetime of patients I could see. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. We often think of innovation as the really big breakthroughs, a a cure to a disease, a tiny implantable device that can keep a heart pumping. But between those major inventions is a whole lot of opportunity to make things better today. To recognize that it could take years or decades to change the way our healthcare coverage works or to get drug costs under control, but by simply shrinking the size of the hole in an eyedropper, you could save patients hundreds or even thousands of dollars every year. Alyssa Song immediately saw this opportunity in 2017 when she happened to read an article titled, Drug Companies Make Eye Drops Too Big and You Pay for the Waste. She was a research scientist at the time at the University of Washington, soon to start medical school at the Mayo Clinic. You hear about founders juggling day jobs while building a startup? Well, Alyssa has built NanoDropper while becoming a doctor. To understand her very practical and productive approach to invention, we go all the way back to elementary school when her family immigrated to the U.S. from Korea. I was in the start of my second grade when we immigrated permanently. Yeah. But even before then, because my mom's major was TESOL, which is teaching English for the second language learner. She had studied abroad in Canada. And so I have really, really early memories of just like seeing a moose for the first time, (laughs) eating string cheese (laughs) in the daycare for Uh the first time. uh But also I have really good memories in Korea of just like date trips that we would take and we would all wear the same color hats. So like they could keep track of whose kids are from like which preschool and things yeah. like that. Uh-huh. Lots of good mems. Have you have you been back? I haven't been able to go back as frequently as I would like to. It had been almost ten years since I've been back, and then last spring I visited again, mm-hmm. and it was, was that a life changing really journey. In yeah. what way? I think first of all, I don't think I. Like really appreciated maybe 10 years ago when I was back there on what it feels like to be somewhere where like everyone looks like you. Mm. You're presumed to belong somewhere. Hmm. And that was a really interesting experience to go through. Yeah. Because I don't think I was able to appreciate it when I was younger. Yeah. So I think that was the first thing. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing was the food (laughs) and the social system that's in place. Uh I think just learning a little bit more about how the healthcare system works and how it differs from ours in the U.S., transportation, just everything was a little Mm -hmm. (laughs) mind-blowing on, wow, like it can work like this. Yeah. And I think something that I learned is like the need for social buy-in to all of these things. Mm So I think it was transformative in, you know, how I think about things, but also just personally, yeah, it was like a homecoming trip for me. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Wow. So growing up, I mean, everything I know about you relates in one way or the other to science, it seems. Were, Were you always interested in the sciences? Did you grow up wanting to be a doctor? Were there doctors in your family? That's funny that you say that because, yeah, I think I was always interested in the sciences. 
I maybe attribute that to my elementary school teacher. I remember absolutely falling in love with science and my science teacher. Hmm. And I think that early spark really took me a long ways in keeping my interest in the sciences. Mm -hmm. I don't have very many healthcare professionals in my family. My uncle is a Korean doctor of medicine. Mm -hmm. So I would probably put that close to like a DO here where um, you do all the traditional medical school, but you do something uh, on top of that. Mm. Hmm. Kind of proving out for you. We'll get yeah, to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when you started, okay, so you you did your, your undergraduate work in Seattle. Is that right? That's right. Okay. And then you moved to Minnesota to go to the Mayo Clinic mm-hmm. for medical school. Not too shabby. <laughs> when you started there, what did you see for yourself? Did you have any idea what, you know, what in particular you wanted to pursue? I knew that I loved being in the OR. I had a little bit of an early experience in seeing surgery. I worked for like a private practice when I was living in California as a high schooler. And again, just like early peaked interest into surgery. Hmm. And so I had a feeling that I would do something either procedural or surgical when I grow up. (laughs) Okay. All right. And then tell... If I'm jumping too far ahead, stop me. I know there was an article that you read that really kind of changed the course of your career. How far along in medical school were you when you read that article? I think you know the article I'm talking about. Yes. I always like to give a shout out to ProPublica and Marshall Allen, who wrote the article that literally changed my life. Okay. So tell (laughs) us. Yes. It was actually back in 2017 when I was applying to medical schools. Okay. The title of the article is Drug Companies Make Eye Drops Too Big and You Pay for the Waste. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Yeah. But it doesn't seem like that would change your life. Like, (laughs) what was it about eye drops that spoke to you? Yeah. I mean, Marshall did a really good job of just storytelling from the patient's perspective in what it meant for this problem of oversized eye drops to become a financial barrier to care for glaucoma patients. Okay. He talked about how patients would run out of their medications too early before the next refill was due, Mm -hmm. and they would be at the pharmacy counter having to decide whether they're going to skip the rest of the month, um, knowing that it's going to contribute to their irreversible blindness, Mm. or pay hundreds of dollars out of pocket. And some of these medications they cost $500 back then, and they still cost the same amount now, mm-hmm. six, seven years later. Mm-hmm. And that's the rent for people. That's, you know, their kids' extracurriculars. And these are things that are sometimes non-negotiable. Yeah. So, so it was that burden and that kind of being forced with that horrible decision, that's what spoke to you? Yeah. I think it was a little bit of maybe indignation mm-hmm. that... Like, people deserve better. Mm -hmm. And it really felt like we were letting people down. We have these great medications that are vision-saving, and we're, like, dangling it in front of people, saying that you have to pay this amount if you want to keep your vision. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like that was so unfair. I was just trying to think about how can we develop a solution that we could hand directly into the hands of patients. And and immediately for you, that was a, a product fix. It wasn't like the system is broken. We need to change benefits. Yeah. Or we need to change pharmaceutical prices. It mm-hmm. was a product. That was what you saw? Yeah. And I think the influence that was forefront um, in kind of where my brain was going was influenced by my current volunteering work at the time with the People's Harm Reduction Alliance. Mm. And I think I was thinking like a harm reductionist, thinking about how do we create a solution now, even while there's this bigger problem to fix in the future. Mm -hmm. It's going to take years to change the system, but we can develop solutions that are effective now. Mm. So in the meantime, we're not giving up on those people. Okay. Interesting. So what did you do? 
in that moment. You're all worked up. <laughs> yep. You I was solve, very worked up. <laughs> you want to solve this problem, but you're just beginning the journey of medical school. What did you do? Yeah. So um, I'm just trying to think back at that morning because it was the first thing I read that morning. <laughs> I think I ran downstairs and I had a little whiteboard uh-huh. and I started drawing out uh, what now I know what to call it, like design specs and design constraints. Basically, hmm. what are the things that the product needs to be able to do in order to solve this problem? So I thought about it being modular, having a flexible piece. I made an assumption that all of these bottles are going to be slightly different. So we need like a malleable piece that could go over different sizes of so you, eye drops. You instantly saw that you needed to fix the eyedropper. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and had you, did you have any experience with product design? I actually had, but right before I uh, went down the clinical medicine journey, I had worked with my best friend in starting a class project that developed into my first entrepreneurial company. Oh, and what was that? It was called Tape It Easy. And we developed a handheld tool to help small-scale farmers lay down drip irrigation. What? I know. (laughs) (laughs) Wait a second. Where did you come up with that? And You are full of surprises. Oh my gosh, thank you. (laughs) I surprise myself sometimes. (laughs) I had this brilliant idea during the summer before my last year of undergrad to volunteer at the UW Experimental Farm. Mm -hmm. I thought it was really cool, and I thought it would be such a cool idea, since my grandparents are farmers, to actually learn how food is grown, uh, be part of, be more in touch Mm -hmm. with where my food is coming from. But my job for the summer instead was laying down drip irrigation. (laughs) I think a lot of people don't know that more than 85% of all fresh water is actually used for agriculture. Mm -hmm. And like residential, like personal use makes up a very, very small percentage. So when you think about high yield in saving fresh water, we should be looking at agriculture. And drip irrigation is the most efficient irrigation system. But small-scale farmers just can't afford to use it because it's very labor-intensive, and it's time-intensive to lay it down. Okay. And what did you do? How did you fix that? (laughs) Um, So what we decided to do, and this was months later when my friend took me to this entrepreneurship class where they take engineers and scientists in training, Mm -hmm. all, all students at UW, put them in a class together, and they're tasked to solve an environmental problem. Mm. So I made my first pitch in that class of this problem that I saw last summer. And we were one of the only student teams to go on to the bigger environmental challenge in the following year. Wow. What, so, what became of that idea? Did it, did it turn into anything? Yeah, we were at a crossroads. So what we had developed is a hand-powered tool that's pneumatically powered and It helps you transport the 50-pound rolls of drip tape, Mm -hmm. and it's on a Lazy Susan. So you can actually lay it down horizontally, run it down the rows of vegetables. It has a cutter, and you roll the device over the drip tape after you've laid it down, and it has a pneumatically powered stapler Hmm. to secure it to the ground. Clever. And (laughs) does does it exist today? It does not exist commercially. We did the prototyping and proof of concept. And then when it came to the crossroads, we were having to decide whether we would become this giant uh, manufacturer that would have to basically be a sheet metal manufacturer mm. plus staple, <laughs> uh, staple manufacturer. And at that time, even though we would have loved to take on that venture, I think we were all early in our careers. Yeah. So we decided that we would just make the designs available to the public. Mm. And if a small-scale farmer would like to use it, they have the means to and the instructions to do so. Very nice. But that whole experience got you fired up about entrepreneurship. 
Yeah, it was an unexpected spark for sure. Really? It wasn't mm-hmm. something you had thought about before? No, I don't think. Yeah, I even though everyone on my dad's side are business majors and things like that, I was pretty hyper-focused on um, my love for neuroscience and the translational research I, I was doing at the time. Mm-hmm. You yeah. were doing that as an undergrad? That's correct. As well. Okay. So after that happened, did it change? I mean, you still were on this medical path. Did, did you think there, were, there was another product in your future, or was it not until that moment that you read the article and got fired up and took to the whiteboard? Yeah, it really was just that article that changed everything. I thought, you know, the next step was X, Y, and Z, including medical school. And I knew that it would be a rigorous course of medical training that follows. And so I really wasn't in the market to (laughs) do anything that risky. Mm -hmm. But you just couldn't help yourself. I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) And and was it just that you felt like you saw so clearly how you could solve a problem? Or was it that you thought, wow, you know, this could be a huge commercial success? What what drove you to actually see it through? I I think it was just that I saw the opportunity as such a low-hanging fruit to change the lives of so many people. And I kept asking myself, why hasn't someone done this? And I felt like since I was seeing it right now, it was my responsibility to see it through mm-hmm. as long as I could. So what happened after you sketched out your original idea on that whiteboard? After I sketched it out, the first person that I pitched it to is one of our co-founders, Elias, who is a mechanical engineer by training. Mm-hmm. And then the two of us submitted a provisional patent for the nanodropper adapter. Hmm. And... You didn't even have a prototype? We didn't have a prototype, and we knew that we didn't need a prototype because of what I learned through the previous entrepreneurship journey with TBDC. Yeah. Did you get it? Did you get the patent? Oh, yeah. So after the provisional, we actually looked for additional members of our team because, Mm -hmm. you know, when you have an idea, you need bootstrapping funds. And I knew that one of the opportunities for early non-dilutive funding was student-level competitions. Mm. So what I did was I pitched it then to my lab mates, Mackenzie, who had joined as an undergrad and who subsequently did her master's in bioengineering with the lab, and then Jenny, who was a graduate student in the same lab. So I pitched the idea to them and said, hey, I think there's something here to prototype this. Would you want to join our team and see if we can apply for some of these opportunities? Okay. So then that's how we made our co-founding team in the end of four. Mm-hmm. We, and, and this was like 2017, 18? So this was early 2018 is when we received our first prototyping fund. Okay. And we took that and then made an early prototype and then submitted it to the Holloman Health Innovation Competition that spring. Wow. And did you get anywhere? We won a runner-up award, one of the runner-up awards. But we were able to basically vet this idea with the greater Seattle community. Mm. And because of that and the media that followed after, We started getting emails from ophthalmologists. We started having our early champions of the product who wanted to really see our product come to life. Mm -hmm. And we even met the first couple of people that we would meet um, that were actually patients that wanted this device to exist. Hmm. And so we had a little fuel, a little fire. Yeah. And so we did that multiple times over. (laughs) Wow. And that gave you the money you needed to actually build the product? Yeah. So we ended up going to uh, Johns Hopkins that year where we actually won the grand prize. And that enabled us to file for our utility patent, the non-provisional utility patent. And then we came back the following year to the same Holloman Innovation Competition hmm. and won the grand prize. When we return, Alyssa brings the nanodropper to the Mayo Clinic. But first, a word from our sponsor. 
Today's episode is made possible with support from Bremer Bank. When you're looking for business advice, everyone's got an opinion, an angle, a surefire five-step plan. But if you want to know whether any of it actually makes sense for your business, who do you turn to? Work with a banker who understands your business goals and how a strong banking relationship will help you achieve them. Work with Bremer Bank, because understanding is everything. Put Bremer to work for you today at bremer.com. So how do you improve on an eyedropper? Alyssa explains. The nanodropper adapter is an adapter for eyedrop medication bottles that's compatible with about 90% of bottles that you would find. Mm Mm-hmm. And it reduces the size of the droplet that's formed. Currently, those droplets that you see are way too big for the human eye. And so there's a lot of waste. Up to 80% of that drop is being wasted. Mm. So the nanodropper adapter. It's not just our bad aim. Exactly. (laughs) And we hear that all the time where people are like, it's always on my cheek. And it's because the eye gets flooded. And so it has to go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And so it's either being absorbed by your sinuses, or you blink it out. Hmm. Okay. So, so you, so it, it had a smaller opening on it. Is that essentially? Okay. Yeah. And I have one I can show you okay, afterwards good. as well. Excellent. I mean, why, it seems so obvious. Why don't the makers of the actual eye drop bottles just make smaller holes? That is a great question, <laughs> and one of the first questions that we dug into because we were like, why is this even a problem in the first place? Yeah. And it turns out that the drug manufacturers aren't the bottle manufacturers. They're using bottles that already exist. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure back in the day when they were first starting to develop glaucoma medications, they never thought in a million years that these medications could cost up to five, six hundred dollars per bottle. Mm -hmm. There was some early research that was done that we designed the adapter after. So scientifically, we have known that these eye drops are too big. Mm-hmm. It just I don't think there was enough incentive for these companies to start making their own bottles. But why, if you were getting in the business of manufacturing, why not make the actual bottle mm-hmm. yourself? I think they were just using what was available at the time. Um, of course, if I was the drug manufacturer, I think I would create mm-hmm. the bottle that goes along with it. But if they were really, really cheap medications to begin with, they probably didn't see a need for them to all of a sudden transition Mm -hmm. from manufacturing pharmaceuticals to bottles. But I mean, for you, um, why not make a bottle rather than an adapter for the existing bottles? Yeah, that's a great question. (laughs) Also an early question that we asked ourselves. And essentially, other people have tried to do to create a brand new packaging system. Mm -hmm. But in order to have it be, quote unquote, compatible with all of the different types of medications, you would have to then sell your bottle to these pharmaceutical companies who already have, you know, their supply chain figured out. I see. While with an adapter, it accomplishes what I wanted to do, which is putting whatever product it is, the solution, into the hands of patients and giving them some of that power back. So you wanted to cut out, you weren't going to the pharmaceutical companies, you wanted to go straight to the end user. Exactly. Okay. And this was going to be something that they would buy out of pocket? Yes, that's correct. Because in the long run, it would save them more money. Yeah. By reducing the size of the droplet, we allow each bottle to last three times as long. Hmm. So not only are patients not running out too early before insurance will cover the next refill, it has the potential to actually save them considerable amounts of money in the long run. Wow. Okay. So you've got a team, you've won some competitions, you've got some momentum and enough money to actually manufacture? Not quite, because we needed a pretty big sum of money to invest into our molds because Mm. our product is injection molded. We use medical grade silicone and these would have to be manufactured in clean rooms since we wanted this to be a sterile medical device. Okay. And that was really important to us. So what we did is we found our early investors 
at these competitions, ah. at the Holman Innovation Competition, the one that we won when we returned. We found our biggest supporters and investors in the judges crowd. Wow. Did mm-hmm. you did you do that intentionally? I mean, you knew you were looking for them? Looking for investors? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We really didn't have the big conversations until afterwards. But yeah, during during the judging rounds, we were talking to hundreds of people in the greater Seattle area that were investors and who are also entrepreneurs or leaders in their field. And hmm. so that was just like the best crowd to be able to pitch in front of. Got it. So by the time you moved to Rochester to start medical school at the Mayo, were you manufacturing? Was, was NanoDropper, what, what stage was it at? It was still very much in its infancy because that was July of 2018. Mm-hmm. So that was less than a year after I had read the article. Mm-hmm. Wow. And we moved really quickly in the mm-hmm. beginning. I mean, I feel like we're still sprinting right now, yeah. to be honest. But when, when I decided that I was going to go to Mayo Clinic, the founders and I sat down and had that talk about where is this going? We have a little bit of early traction. We have investors who believe in us and want to help us manufacture when that time comes. What do we want to do? And so we decided that we can at least start and formally create a company. Mm -hmm. And we felt like we had enough. We had enough traction to do that. So we incorporated right before I matriculated into med school mm. and decided that we'll build the company in the early stages as I learn about the healthcare system as well and learn about the more like clinical applications and the clinical pharmacology behind all of this. Mm-hmm. And so we were doing the learning simultaneously. Did you think at all about becoming an ophthalmologist? Yeah. Did you? <laughs> I mean, I still do. <laughs> you do? Okay. Yeah. I was like, is that a dumb question? But it no, seems like now all. that you're so focused on such a specific, you know, problem, why, why, why haven't you taken that path? Yeah. Ophthalmology is such a cool field. I mean, throughout my journey with NanoDropper, I think what I've come to appreciate is that that world of glaucoma and how much like resiliency and community is highlighted during this terrible disease process and Mm -hmm. progression. And I was really inspired by, of course, the patient story that we receive and their caregivers that really surround them and rally around them. Mm -hmm. But also on the glaucoma specialist side, on how, how rewarding it must be to be able to take a patient and actually follow them and care for them for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. This, was all, this is a chronic disease, and I would, it would be such a privilege to so be it's still a possibility. I mean, you, you could decide to specialize. After. Oh, absolutely. Okay, okay yeah. got it. I, I, we don't I'm, choose until residency. Right, mm-hmm. okay, you're not quite there yet. So, well, talk about that for a minute. There you are. I mean, you know, we talk to a lot of entrepreneurs who have a day job or it's a side hustle or, you know, until they make it work. But medical school, <laughs> that's hard. So you're, you're starting medical school and you're starting a new business. Did your classmates know? How did you divide your time? And, and what I know you had a team, but like what part of this were you directly working on in your first couple of years of medical school? To answer your first question, yes, all of my classmates knew about it. We have a super, we had a super tight knit class of less than 50 students. Mm. My admin knew about it. I was super transparent and getting their support was absolutely critical in order for me to be able to do both. Yeah. I would think the Mayo Clinic would be very receptive <laughs> to it. To I a, hope they're proud. To a med, a med tech <laughs> device student as well as a medical student. Yeah. I hear all the time that the NanoDropper adapter is a very Mayo-like in- innovation. Uh-huh. You know, the needs of the patient come first, um, mm. all of that. It fits their philosophy. It really does. Okay, so so they they're cheering you on, but mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean you don't have to go to class or do all the work. How <laughs> yeah. how did you manage that? It was basically everything minus school was dedicated to Nanodropper. Um, it helped that we were in the Central Time Zone, 
And so when we would uh, be done with our day, there were still a couple hours left in Pacific time mm. where Jenny and Mackenzie still were. Mm. So if there were meetings, they were afternoon meetings. And even into the evening, we would have our co-founder meetings in the evenings or even on the weekends. It was a really exciting time. Mm. And I loved spending all of my free time with NanoDropper related work. So when did, I mean, NanoDropper is now commercially available? That's correct. When did it become available to the public? We launched our first product in June of 2020. Okay. Again, a very interesting time to decide that we're going to launch a medical device to the public. It's now available on our website at nanodropper.com and also through our network of clinics We are in about 2,500 clinics across all 50 states. Hmm. And that was really our goal, to be able to work directly with the eye care clinic and the ophthalmologist and optometrist so that they can kind of make that clinical decision-making and patient selection, and they have full control over who in their patient population is using the nanodropper. Got it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what does it cost? If I'm, I use eye drops, I just decide to go buy one, what am I going to pay? The MSRP is $15.99. Okay. And at that price, your break-even point as the end user mm-hmm. is if you pay at least $8 out of pocket for your medication, then the nanodropper can pay for itself since it makes that bottle last three times as long. Hmm. Okay. It sounds great, but at the same time, we all know that getting the word out can be the biggest challenge. Now, mm-hmm. I suppose it helps to have the clinics, but did people come flocking to the website? How, how did they know about this and did they see the value? At first, we relied heavily on our early adopters, the physicians who reached out to us before we even were available on the market. We had a patient wait list on patients who had heard about us, read about us and also reached out to us before we were available. Mm-hmm. And then with the launch, we did a lot of marketing campaigns, both on the provider side as well as our customer side on Facebook, Instagram, all the social media pages, but even things like Nextdoor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and did it work? I mean, as you were watching the numbers, were, were, peop- were you making sales? Were you yeah. making money? Yeah, that first couple of orders was so exciting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And by volume, I mean, the last year we've surpassed anything we've done in the previous years. So we've been growing really, really quickly. Hmm. Are you profitable yet? No. And as a startup with multiple products in the pipeline, that wasn't necessarily our goal for 2023. We're a little bit more like a health tech company mm-hmm. with a commercial product that we launched a little early. Okay. Yeah. So so you've got this product. What are other products that you're working on? It's top secret. <laughs> <laughs> but it is all about how do we optimize chronic eye disease management to improve patient outcomes while elevating the patient experience and reducing cost of care at the same time. Okay. It's kind of the big theme. Okay. What has the reception been to NanoDropper in the the medical community? To our surprise, there was very little pushback. And now, in hindsight, knowing what I know about, you know, the medical training that ophthalmologists receive, it's not surprising anymore because we learn that the eye has a finite capacity. We learn that the eye drops are too big. Hmm. But there just hasn't been a solution. Mm -hmm. So it was great from our perspective that we didn't have to try and change someone's mind or have to convince someone that these eye drops are too big and actually harmful. Mm -hmm. And there's all this data that preceded our company that demonstrated how it's just as efficacious while having better side effects, Mm. better side effect profiles. Yeah. What about the pharmaceutical industry or even manu- bottle makers? Have you? I mean, you know, d- would could they see what you're doing and say, oh, we're just going to make our bottles better? That's what we thought at first, too. And I'm not really sure about the bottle manufacturers themselves, but the response from pharma has been really interesting to me. I think because we're living in a world where the healthcare system is moving towards value-based care, They're seeing that if patients have 
better tolerability to their medications, meaning they can stay on that medication for a longer period of time. Not only are the patient outcomes better, that actually, you know, is better for the pharma company as well. Hmm. So instead of thinking about just having as many people on these medications, they're now thinking about outcomes and patient experience at the same time, which actually is in alignment with their incentives as well. Hmm. So So what overall would you say, I mean, you have such interesting perspective being a medical student, being in Rochester where innovation is a real value and, and there is a lot of med tech entrepreneurship happening, or at least it seems from the outside. Does, does it feel that way when you're in the middle of it? Yeah, I think with COVID, it's just been a little isolating in general. Mm. Um, I know there's a lot of effort to really build on our community and our sense of community in Southeast Minnesota in general. Mm-hmm. And I'm connected with those groups and are really grateful to have their support. But I feel like we're not quite there like a big city feel where there's so many startups and we have just organic opportunities to run into each other. Hmm. Interesting. There's a big movement right now to make Minnesota, you know, a med tech hub nationally. We're yeah. in the running. Do you feel like that would, that sort of designation, obviously it would bring money with it, but would that change things? I hope so. Most of our investors are not from the Midwest, Mm -hmm. and I think that's because there's been generations of early investing venture capital firms on either coast. Mm -hmm. And I think because of that, there's more, it's just like a continuous cycle. Hmm. Because they're being able to invest early, they see the big returns, they continue to invest in early startups, while we don't quite have that ecosystem here in the state. So it's been easier to to convince them or to bring them on board. Exactly. I think we need more early stage investors Mm -hmm. in the state in order to really be able to play the numbers game, which is, you know, the startup world. You have to make all of those big investments knowing that only the few will prevail, Mm -hmm. but that will bring uh, capital back into the state as well. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so those are observations on the entrepreneurship startup side. What about on the, the medical side? What what have you learned or observed both as, you know, a future doctor and a, a CEO of a medical device company? What we're, What do you see as the problems we need to solve? The problems. <laughs> <laughs> so many it does feel a little overwhelming at times, but I think I'm I'm an optimist and I have so much hope for where our healthcare system could go. I think at the helm needs to be physician-driven leadership. And I think that's really what we're missing in every sector of healthcare hmm. because it needs to be someone who is making business decisions that has cared for patients and has worked in the healthcare system Mm -hmm. to really understand where the needs are and how we can align incentives so that we can actually drive down costs and provide better outcomes. Yeah. I know for you personally, you're taking a little break right now from school, Mm -hmm. right, to focus on the business. And is that because, I mean, is there a lot going on right now in particular with NanoDropper, or did you just reach a a point where you couldn't do both? I think it was really at a point where I was looking at residency and NanoDropper and realizing I probably couldn't do both at that time Mm -hmm. because we were starting that growth curve right after the launch. It was all hands on deck and it felt like I would be abandoning the ship Mm -hmm. if I just all of a sudden disappeared for residency. And so... I felt like we had enough traction where we should see this through. Sure. And we have some big plans coming up as well. My dream is to be able to find avenues where we can actually provide nanodroppers free of cost to the end user. Mm. So we're working on that right now. Okay. And I would love to be able to see everyone who needs a nanodropper in the U.S., globally, 
to have access to one. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of projects in the works, but hopefully people will just continue to have better and better access to their glaucoma medications. Is it only glaucoma that people are, that you're really targeting? It's definitely our focus, but it's not exclusively used by glaucoma medications. A lot of our patients use it for their post-op cataract Mm. drops. People use it for over-the-counter drops. Smaller droplets means that your eye is getting less preservatives. So uh, patients who are concerned about like dry eye development, they use it specifically for that purpose. And even things like Lumify that you get over the counter, mm-hmm. just not to have it make a uh, make a mess. Sure. After you've put on full face makeup. <laughs> yeah. And Nano Dropper is something that, I mean, can you use the device more than once or do you see this as something where you're replacing it regularly? Because it's a sterile medical device, we only have it for single bottle use. Okay. So you put it on when you first open the bottle so you can keep it as clean as possible mm. after opening. And then you toss it with the bottle okay. or recycle. So from a business perspective, that's good because you need repeat repeat purchases. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so for you personally, where do you, where is your passion right now? What gets you most excited? Is it, I mean, do you still see yourself one day working directly with patients or in a clinic or running a business empire? <laughs> wow. Yeah, what who do I what do we what do I want to be when I grow up now? <laughs> kind of. Yes. <laughs> there are so many more options that I see than compared to when I was first starting medical school and I never thought that I would be in this position where there are options other than residency hmm. after graduating. And the thing that I keep coming back to is like the level of impact that we've been able to make as a team with NanoDropper versus, you know, how many patients I could have helped if I was a physician. Hmm. And we're, we're going to be helping hundreds of thousands of patients with our device. Mm-hmm. And that's probably like more than a lifetime of patients I could see. That's so, so interesting. <laughs> that's something that keeps... That keeps me thinking. Yeah. So I'm not sure yet, but I hope that I can be one of those physicians that I talked about previously, like a physician leader in in the healthcare space, whatever it may look like, to really revolutionize how we think about incentives in this field. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. It's a big vision and um, it's really exciting. I have no doubt we're going to be seeing you out in the front of some, whether it's this company or another one, and say, we talked to her when she was just a medical <laughs> student. It's very oh exciting. Do, should we expect, I know you can't give it all away right now, but do you see the next big thing being um, other products or other partnerships with the existing products? Can you say that? A little bit of both. Okay. We're making really cool partnerships. Like we're partnered with a care coordination company called Lumata Health, and they help high-risk patients that are managing chronic eye diseases navigate the healthcare system to make sure that, you know, there are no logistical barriers like not being able to go and pick up their medication that they need, things mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. and having one-on-one help for those patients. So we are partnered with them so that if patients are running out and that's a concern, we can mail them a nano dropper adapter and help solve some of those problems. Hmm. So we have great partnerships like that and also more products in the pipeline. Very cool. If there's one thing that you could suggest to others in the medical field, um, I, I mean, anywhere, talk benefits, clinical, any of it, pharmaceutical, what do you think is something that they could change that would make a big difference for for patients? There just feels like there's so much, there's so much waste, there's so much bureaucracy, there's Mm -hmm. so much red tape. I think there's one thing, I think I've had a lot of physicians talk to me during the last few years about how they saw 
this problem or that problem and they wish they had the tools to solve them. Mm. And so I feel like there must be so many innovations that could exist if physicians felt like they had the tools to do so. Hmm. And I had no experience before. I had no formal training. And we kind of just figured it out and found the mentors to do so. Mm -hmm. And I think entrepreneurship is kind of like that, where there's not going to be another person who has done that exact thing. And that's what's so scary about it. But I think our medical training actually teaches you a really, really good job on how to make decisions based on incomplete sets of data. Huh. And so I see business decisions kind of like that as well. Interesting. <laughs> so I would like to, you know, challenge our physicians and optometrists and any other healthcare professionals who take care of patients and see the problem firsthand. I would like to empower them to show them that they really do have the tools to get it started, yeah. that they can be that agent for change. Yeah. So so maybe it's it's Mayo Clinic having buckets of money for, for doctors who to pursue an idea. Yeah, yeah. In addition to clinical time. That would be very cool mm -hmm. if uh, Mayo Clinic Ventures started <laughs> doing early, more like early stage investing and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, removing barriers. And not, exactly. not everybody is going to have the drive and the initiative to go out and set up the whole team the way you did and to juggle both of these pursuits at the same time. It is a really, really hard ask for sure <laughs> for other people. But yeah, you don't have to do it alone. And you don't even have to be like the entrepreneur yourself. Hmm. And whether you're the innovator, entrepreneur or both. Mm-hmm. I think that just taking that first step and feeling like you can bring this to light and you can bring your idea to life, I think is a really powerful feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you are certainly the role model for that. And it must feel so satisfying to, to think back to that whiteboard and see that this product now exists and that you are helping people and saving a lot of money. Yeah, it's been such a rewarding journey. And I'm also super proud that I was able to do it with the other founders and we're still all in it together. Hmm, that's amazing. That really is. Well, congratulations on all the success. Thank you for sharing the story. And I, I know there's going to be, we're going to need another episode for the next <laughs> chapter, I'm sure. We'll be watching. Thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. Alyssa Song, finding holes in the marketplace, literally, and creating solutions that seem so obvious, and yet there it is. Well, for more perspective on how to innovate and how to navigate the business of healthcare, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas, Opus College of Business, where Dan McLaughlin is the Senior Executive Fellow at Opus. Dan, we are delighted to have you back on the show. Happy to be back. So you had a chance to listen to uh, Alyssa's story with Nanodropper. Meanwhile, you are in the midst of teaching seminars, classes right now at St. Thomas about um, healthcare. But, well, you, you, you tell us what you're teaching right now so I don't botch it. So I'm teaching both operations management and I'm also teaching entrepreneurship with my friend John McVeigh. Very nice. Oh, boy. That, that must be something. The two of you together in a classroom. So when you hear the nanodropper story, um, what, what do you think? What, what came to mind for you? Well, the first thing that came to mind right away was just the um, interest that, that this young woman had in healthcare and particularly her passion about it. I mean, she just read this article in a, in a magazine, a newspaper, whatever it was, and, and uh, got real excited about trying to find a solution for people that were actually unable to get some of their medications that were so expensive because the eyedroppers were basically losing the medication. So, I mean, it was passion there that I really appreciated. Right. I mean, and that's the neat thing, I think, about innovating in the healthcare space. You you know that you're having an actual impact on, on people. What, what stuck out to me, as I just said, was just that it's such a tiny thing. You know, I mean, you think about, oh, finding a cure to a disease or doing something really huge. I mean, she's literally making droppers with smaller holes, but what a big difference that can, can have. Right, yeah. And that's one of the things I teach in my operations management class, which is how do you improve processes? And a lot of stuff you'd find out 
are kind of mundane things that if you take a hard look at them and make small changes, you can have huge impacts on the system. And one of the problems in the American healthcare system, it's so complicated right now, people don't take the time to go back and look at these little things. Right. But here, she did. She was really creative about it and turned it into a company, which is just the amazing entrepreneurship part of it, too. So so what is the, the takeaway there for, you know, would-be entrepreneurs or, or innovators just to, to look for the, the, the small improvements? Well, that's one. I mean, sometimes you do have big kind of breakthrough things, but there's always kind of when you kind of take a fresh look at something, you find that there are opportunities. I mean, when I teach process improvement, I always have my students do real flat, real things in their classes, and they go back and look at the things they're kind of doing routinely never thought about. All of a sudden, you go, well, why are we doing this? This is, you know, it doesn't add any value or it's too long. And all of a sudden, they can make those changes, and, and they can sometimes they can actually make that change into something that becomes a company. And hmm. that's what, in fact, happened here. Yeah, absolutely. You also noted that entrepreneurship competitions and awards were were a big part of Alyssa kind of quickly climbing, you know, climbing the ranks and making this into a company. Right. I mean, she she found both, you know, kind of the mentorship to actually build her presentations, her company by being in those things. She also found some vendors and some people that will help her and some funders. And so she found all those things, those competitions. And we're real proud of that here at the College of Business because we have the Schultz School which has multiple of those kind of competitions every year. And so, and out of that, we know we spin out some companies of some of our students. So that's a pretty exciting part of the business to be here in the Opus College of Business. Right. Um, do, do you want to drop any inspiration before we let you go, Dan? Like any area that you think people should should really be looking at for, or, you know, an area of where you think there's a big opportunity for maybe these small incremental changes? Well, there's a lot of stuff in the direct-to-consumer area. That's what she did which is there's all these things on the edges of the healthcare system that people are looking at diet and, and exercise and all those other kind of things, which some experts have said are really going to be the real change in the American healthcare system over the next 10 years. So I'd look around and see what people are doing to keep their health working right. And that might be where the next new invention is going to come from. I love it. We'll be watching. Dan McLaughlin, thank you so much for your perspective as always. And thank you to our presenting partner, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you want to know more about the show, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. And thanks as always for listening to By All Means. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business and Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, especially Dean Laura Dunham, for all their support. Our theme music is by Song Finch. Thank you for listening to By All Means. Mm-hmm.